Good to see you all, especially on a sunny evening. Um, it really feels like summer now, doesn't it? Uh, what a joy to come down and spend time with church family. Tonight, we are very fortunate to have Rupert, Rupert Shelley, um, come to share with us from God's words. Um, and we're thinking all about God's sovereignty. What difference does it make if God is sovereign? Um, how does that affect us? Um, so to that end, let's pray, because we need wisdom, we need understanding, we need probably a bit of patience too with one another. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what a privilege it is that we have a God who speaks to us. Please help us to be attentive as we open up the scriptures tonight. Please help Rupert to speak faithfully and speak as you really have. Please help our conversations on tables. Please make this more than just an academic exercise, but help it to be truths that seep in and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Rupert, over to you. Great. Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be together this evening. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn up Job chapter 42, verse 2. Um, As Alex said, we're considering this evening this huge topic of God's sovereignty. There is a handout uh, I hope you've got. Some slides will appear with some quotes behind me. And uh, good evening to everyone who's online. I don't think my family have made it yet, which is good. Um, uh, A few years back, um, uh, a book was published that was called... Your God is too small. And that title brilliantly sums up for us one of our main problems as 21st century people. It sums up the problem of unbelievers. When I meet someone who says they don't believe in God, I ask them to describe the God they don't believe in. And invariably, they describe a God other than the God of the Bible, a smaller God, really just a a little bit better than a human type of God. And all their questions and excuses for not believing, questions about suffering, about free will, about heaven and about hell, have, have really come down to the fact that their thinking of God, his power, his knowledge, his love, his justice, as if he's like us, only just a little bit bigger than us. And this pint-sized God is also the biggest problem for us Christians, for those of us this evening who follow the Lord Jesus. It's why we panic and lose sleep when the politicians can't resolve a crisis. It's why we fret and stress about our circumstances, money, relationships, exams, the future, retirement, health. It's why we compromise with sin, why we're too scared to tell our friends about Jesus. It's because our God is too small. And this evening, we're going to be tackling that pint-sized God as we consider together his sovereignty. I've got a quote, our first quote for this evening. It's going to come up behind me, though. This is from J.I. Packer. He writes uh, in... Uh, his chapter on God's majesty in knowing God, these words, Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated 
as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little bit pathetic. But that is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hand. But we never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows towards them, the Bible never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. Isn't that incredible to consider on a Wednesday evening? That is who the God of the Bible is. And we're going to consider more of what his unlimited dominion over all his creatures is. Or to put it more succinctly, we're considering tonight the sovereignty of God. So what do we mean by the sovereignty of God? Well, the sovereignty of God means there are no limits to God's rule. His sovereignty is what it means to be, to be is part of what it means to be God. He's sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never helpless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. He's never caught unawares. And in Christ, in Jesus, God's awesome sovereign rule is the place where we feel most secure, most free, and most loved. I put on your sheet a simple definition uh, for God's sovereignty. Uh, It would be this, God's rights and power to do all that he decides to do. I wonder if if somebody's got the microphone, could we read out Job 42 verse 2? God's right, oh sorry, from here, I know that you can do all things, no plan of yours can be thwarted. Great. I know that you can do all things, says Job, talking about God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, having enjoyed the coronation of uh, King Charles III uh, 10 days or so ago, we're at an advantage, I think, uh, when it comes to understanding the concept of sovereignty. So Charles, we will know, is our sovereign. He is our royal ruler. Yeah, as I chatted with John Tia, 12-year-old, about this on Sunday, Charles as sovereign and God as sovereign are rather different categories because of who they are. And our experience of their sovereignty will be totally different because of who they are. So when we speak of God's sovereignty, we must understand it to be a royal rule, yet unlike any other royal rule we've ever encountered. Have a look at Job 42, verse 2 again. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Unlike Charles, who has campaigned on various issues with varying degrees of success, the God of the Bible, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Job, can do all things. No purpose of his can be thwarted. His, according to Packer, 
is unlimited dominion over all his creatures. But look down at our definition of God's sovereignty again uh, there on your handout, God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. Nothing in that definition of sovereignty refers to God's wisdom or God's plans. It's just his right and his power. He has the right and the power to do whatever he decides to do. When he decides to do something, he does it, and no one and nothing can stop him. That is God's sovereignty. Job 42, verse 2, our verse for this evening. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, God's providence, let's move on to that, as most Christians understand it, is best understood as his sovereignty in the service of his wise purposes. Or we could say providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. Please can you turn up uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and... I'm so sorry I put verse 24. It's verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And maybe somebody else who has the microphone now could read that verse. Romans 8, 28, is it? Thank you. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Brilliant. Now, this verse, which um, helpfully takes us to the heart of God's providence, it's been a great help to many people and a comfort to many Christian believers down the ages. Uh, In the church where I served uh, my curacy, a time when I too had a full head of hair and was as good-looking as uh, Woody, there was... (laughs) Laugh, everyone. There was an elderly couple in that church called David and Barbie, who have been absolute stalwarts of the church for, for many, many decades. And David and Barbie Stallman, they were quite frail by the time I got there. In fact, they both went to glory during the four years of my curacy. But the curates were sent to David and Barbie for a cup of tea and an hour or so, every uh, month or so, to uh, just spend time with them. And it was the best uh, theological training I think I've ever received. And Barbie had this phrase, when something happened that didn't make sense to her, in all things, Rupert, in all things. And I remember her saying, Rupert, it's one of those in all things moments. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to to his purpose. Now, Bruce Ware, a rather short American theologian, he helpfully defines God's providence like this, and it's going to appear on the screen behind me. God exhaustively and meticulously carries out his perfect will as he alone knows best, regarding all that is in heaven and on earth, and he does so without failure or defeat, accomplishing his purposes in all of creation from the smallest details to the grand purposes of his plan for the whole of the created order. Or to put it a little more succinctly, B.B. Warfield, a theologian of a previous generation, he writes these words, there is nothing that is and nothing 
that comes to pass that God has not decreed and then brought to pass by his creations or providence. So when we use this word sovereignty that we're considering this evening, we don't just mean that God has the right to rule, as we might of a human monarch, but that he actually does divinely direct and control all that happens in our lives, in his world, under his good, gracious hand of providence. So sovereignty, his absolute dominion over all things, his royal rule, providence, God's wise and purposeful application of that sovereignty. And we're going to see this evening that those truths, this Bible truth, this theology, well, it puts concrete into our souls. Could you turn to your neighbours now? We're going to have lots of interaction this evening. Uh, I just wanted you to consider these two questions as we warm up this evening. How does the sovereignty of God what we've considered the last 10 minutes make you feel? And would you give an example of God's providence in your life? Maybe something happened today, maybe this week, or any point in your life. I'll just give us three minutes to have a a talk about that now. Great. Thanks, everyone. Let's come back together there. Uh, We have got a microphone. I I wondered if anyone was feeling brave, they might just give an example, an encouragement of God's providence in your life. Does anyone have anything they want to share from recently? No, we do. We want to hear it. Oh, thank you, Jill. It's very difficult to say this concisely, but uh, we firmly believe that in God's providence, Roger and I were prompted to go to a, a morning of MRI scans and other scans as part of the re- medical research project that we're part of. Um, we didn't really want to go, but we thought we better had. And um, out of all that, it was discovered I had a brain tumour. And um, so I would never have known because I've got no symptoms. It's wow. a benign brain tumour, but so it can be dealt with before I get the symptoms. Wow. <laughs> Jill, that's fantastic, isn't it? Phil's netting. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, it, I mean, isn't that a wonderfully encouraging example of God's providence? Did everyone hear that? I mean, that is incredible. And um, I'm sure other people have got as dramatic... Uh, examples. But it can, it can be the dramatic, it can be the everyday, can't it? Because God's hand is on our life, directing and ordering our affairs. Great. Well, let's move on. We'll have plenty of time for questions later. Let's think about our first heading. And this is the, the fact that God is sovereign over all creation. The Bible is littered with the truth that God is sovereign. I've just pulled out four headings for us this evening. There's many more. Could you turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 1? And uh, we're going to read verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, 
in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Thank you. So it's a familiar verse to us, I'm sure, in which the Apostle Paul teaches this doctrine of predestination to life. And we're going to come on to that later on in the evening. But for now, just notice with me this phrase, he works all things or everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. In other words, when we say that God is sovereign in creation, we don't simply mean that he uh, created the world, that he made the world, although he did do that. Rather, we also mean, because the Bible teaches, that he now rules over and directs the world and all events in it, such that nothing happens in his creation that is outside of his control and his will. He's therefore not the uh, divine watchmaker of deism who simply wound the world up in the beginning and now lets it run of its own accord. No, God, he controls all the processes of nature and our lives down to the minutest of details. Please turn with me to Job chapter 37. I tried to choose some of the verses from Job 37, but it's all too good. So we're going to read it all. And I think Robert is going to do it for us. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men he has made may know his work. He stops every man from from his labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies as hard as a mirror of of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as, as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him, for does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? 
It's an extraordinary chapter, isn't it? Uh, He loads, he scatters, he brings. And then you get these rhetorical questions, all of which have the answer, no. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? No. Do, Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? No. It's an incredible chapter as the sovereignty of God is laid bare. Verse 24, what's the application? Therefore, people revere him. God is sovereign over all creation. He sends the snow, the rain, the lightning, the wind, the clouds. And it's therefore right that we often pray for the weather (laughs) on camp or a holiday club or for a church family hog roast at the coronation. We pray because God is sovereign over our weather. And he controls each individual part of nature too, doesn't he? So Matthew 10, verse 29, I'll read this to us, a familiar verse. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Yes, he sends the snow and the lightning, the wind and the rain. And yet even the birds do not fall to the ground outside of God's care. There's a great quote from the uh, Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon about dust moats. Uh, you may not even know what a dust moat is. I, was, I had to look it up again. Let me explain what a dust moat is. Hands up if you know what a dust moat is. Don't be embarrassed. Some people do. It's a very old-fashioned expression. Let me explain. So when I get up in the morning um, in my room and it's dark, I don't see anything. But if I open the curtains a little bit, a shaft of light shines through. When, and when I look through the beam, I see those little dust particles hanging in the air. A few people get those now. Uh, and all that dust is there, and it's flying around. And I'm saying, am I really breathing in that stuff? Well, well yes, I am, and yes, you are. Those are dust motes. And Spurgeon says that every one of those particles, every one of those tiny microscopic particles is being kept in position and moving through the air by God's appointment. Proverbs 16, verse 33, it's a familiar verse. We read, the lot or dice is thrown into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Why a verse about a dice, dice being cast? Well, I think it's because that is the most random thing Solomon could think of. But he, of course, it's not random to God. The sovereign God is not the least bit taxed by keeping every subnuclear particle in its place in my bedroom or the dice when it's thrown. God is sovereign over all creation, with the exciting conclusion being that he controls and plans and directs all the events of my life and your life. So let's turn to Psalm 39. And we'll have a look at this in Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6. My life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. 
Each man's life is but of breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. Thank you. So the psalmist here pictures my life and your life as being a bit like a book uh, which God has already written. And as I go through each day, I'm simply turning the next page on what God has already planned. Indeed, even my own decisions are superintended and directed by him. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart, even King Charles, is in the hand of the Lord's. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. God is sovereign over all of creation and over all of our lives. Now, in 1862, when Abraham Lincoln was uh, 53 years old, his 11-year-old son, William, died. And Abraham Lincoln's uh, wife tried to deal with her grief by searching out New Age mediums. Whereas Lincoln turned to a Christian pastor, Phineas Gurley, the pastor of uh, New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington. And several long talks uh, and conversations uh, after those, uh, Abraham Lincoln was converted to Christ. And Lincoln confided that he was driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. And similarly, the horrors of the dead and wounded of the soldiers of the American Civil War, they deeply affected Abraham Lincoln. Did you know there were over 50 hospitals alone in uh, Washington? And typically, I read 50 soldiers a day would die in these temporary hospitals. And all of this drove Lincoln deeper into the providence and sovereignty of God. He said, we cannot but believe that he who made the world still governs it. God is sovereign over all creation. Therefore, Job 37 verse 24, people revere him. Why don't we turn to one another on our tables again? Um, The question I want us to consider briefly now, just for a few minutes, how does God being sovereign over all of creation help your perspective on life? Let's have three or four minutes looking at that. Great. If we could just come back here. Some tables are getting nice and animated. Some are a bit sleepy. Anyone briefly just want to share how the sovereignty of God helps their perspective on life? I should have said possibly looking back on one's life or looking forward on one's life. Oh, there's, there's both directions. Anyone want to share? There's a microphone. Oh, Alistair, far left. Thank you, Alistair. Thanks, Ellie. Um, Yeah, so I'm going back in time um, to uh, Friday many years ago when at work we were told there'd be um, job cuts coming up and there'd be a big announcement on Monday. So everyone went home at the weekend 
I trusted in God's sovereignty and had a very peaceful weekend in his peace and, and all the rest of it. Came back to work, but those who were not believers were a real mess because they'd spent the whole weekend worrying and fretting about what was coming, mm. whereas I could approach it with, I don't know what's coming, but I'm trusting in God. If I have a job still, that's great. If I don't, I'm sure he's got something else lined up for me. Thank you so much. That's so wonderful. And we actually don't need to know whether you kept your job or not, because that's not the point, is it? Did you keep it? (laughs) Doesn't matter. Great. Isn't that helpful, though, to have God in your corner? No fear of bad news, says the psalmist. Okay, let's do one more heading before we break. So let's go over the page. Um, there, were, um, there are some incorrect Bible verses, by the way. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't Psalm 21, verse 1. It was Proverbs 21, verse 1 on the previous heading before people pointed out to me. Let's uh, secondly think about God as sovereign in salvation. So what we've seen so far is that God is over the macro world. He's over the micro world. They're all under his control, his dominion, which means, yes every horrible thing and every sinful thing is ultimately governed by God, which can pose a problem for us. For we might ask ourselves, and many of us will be thinking this this evening, how can God ever be sovereign over my suffering and over my sin? And friend, if that is you, that is a brilliant question to be asking. And the center of the solution to that question is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, if you would. We're going to spend most of our time in Acts chapter 4, but Acts chapter 2, I should have included this earlier, verse 22 and verse 23. When we come to the cross, what we're seeing is God's sovereignty at work and yet human responsibility at play. And yet amidst the most awful travesty of justice, we see how God is working out his purposes over suffering and sin. Let me read Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. We don't squash them together, we hold them in tension. And if you turn over the page to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28, we get a second bite of the cherry. Uh, Could somebody read out Acts 4, 27 and 28, please? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Thanks so much. Though the cross was an act of sinful men... It was planned and orchestrated by God for his saving purposes. Now, in this verse, notice unashamedly, the Bible puts human responsibility and decision-making side by side with God's divine sovereignty. 
So, so who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, yes, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews. They plotted, they accomplished Jesus' murder. Yet all along, even as they made their own decisions, with no external compulsion or control, they were simply doing what God had already decided and planned before the creation of the world should take place. God is sovereign in the accomplishment of our salvation, and he is sovereign over the suffering of his son and the sin that we commit. This is how John Piper puts it, and a quote should appear behind me. Thanks, Ed. Therefore, the death of Jesus was not mainly a tragic set of events which God turned for good. It was a loving set of events that God planned for good. God himself served the death warrant on his son. He didn't just predict it, he unleashed it. Yet, Jesus died not only to offer salvation to the world, yes, but he was died to bring people to himself. So, so he's also just as sovereign, not only in the accomplishment of salvation, but also in the application of this salvation that he won at the cross to individuals. And we're going to see that now. Can you turn to John chapter 6, verse 44? John 6, uh, verse 44. Let me uh, read this to us. We read uh, the words of Jesus. He says this, uh, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. You see, God is sovereign in the accomplishment of salvation. He's sovereign over the application of salvation as he has to work in our hearts to draw us to himself. Now, many young Christians struggle with the doctrine of predestination that we glimpsed at in Ephesians 1, the truth that before the creation of the world, God chose a people for himself that he would bring to salvation. And yes, that is a hard doctrine to understand because uh, I'm not God and he is. But I find the way to help people see its truth is to begin my talking about their own salvation. So have a think now about your own salvation if you follow Jesus. Most genuine Christians recognize the truth of what Jesus says here in verse 44, John 6, 44. That without God's divine initiative and involvement, they would never have chosen to follow Christ. It's why later on in Ephesians, in chapter 2, Paul describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins. A friend of mine, uh, their son Harry, got four goldfish for uh, his ninth birthday present. Sadly, like most goldfish, they didn't last very long. Uh, The first was bullied by the others, never got any food. The second was accidentally crushed by a magnetic cleaning pad. Not great. Don't tell Harry if you ever meet him. Um, The third had to be fished out because it got a bladder infection. Now, the point is this. When that goldfish, the fourth one, lay dead outside of the tank, uh, there was no point, my friend, telling it to jump back into the water because it was already dead. And the point is this. You can put the gospel in front of people. You can put the gospel in front of me. You can make Jesus so attractive and wonderful with human words. But left to myself, I will not and I cannot put my trust in him. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins outside of Christ. 
What we all need, what all of humanity need, is a miracle of new birth, as Nicodemus himself uh, was told by Jesus in John chapter 3. He needed to be born again, Israel's teacher. Even he needed to be born again. And in the words of John 6, verse 44, I need the Father to draw me to Jesus, to open my blind eyes, to soften my hard heart, so that I'm enabled to respond in repentance and faith. God is sovereign in salvation. He does do that, as many of us in this room can testify. Now, just before we close, I remember a preacher once describing this relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation like this. Imagine you see a gate in front of you, uh, and written above it are the words of Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, the pilgrim comes to God, they pass through the gate, but when they glance back, they now see some different words. Words of John 15, verse, 20, uh, verse 16. Those words, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Come to me, I chose you. God is sovereign in salvation. Uh, we're going to break there. Uh, We will be having a time of questions at the end. Um, I'll try and spike your guns before question time in the second half, so there will be no questions. Um, Third, let's have a think about uh, God's sovereignty in final uh, judgments. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. These uh, final two headings, we're getting more practical And then we'll have the implications and then one final application. So Acts chapter 17. Would somebody be happy to read verse 13 and 31 of Acts 17? Asked, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Great. Thanks so much. Um, The Bible is really clear that history is linear. Uh, The world is heading somewhere to God's chosen destination on God's chosen timetable. Contrary to the uh, t-shirt I saw in the gym this week that declared, uh, no one is coming, the Bible's clear, Jesus is coming back. There is going to be an end. And scripture frequently affirms the fact that there will be a final judgment of believers and unbelievers. And that is very important if God is sovereign. They will all, we will all stand before a judgment seat of Christ in resurrected bodies to hear of the proclamation of our eternal destiny. And those uh, verses uh, from Revelation 20, 11 to 15 spell that out. But let's just have a look at Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Let me read Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness 
and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgments will be revealed. It's great that it's a righteous judgment. It's not an unrighteous judgment. God knows all things. He's omniscient. It's a righteous judgment. And we must remember who the one is who's going to be doing the judging. It is the Lord Jesus himself. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. God the Father has given the right to act as judge over the whole universe to his Son, Jesus. John 5, verse 27. He has given authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And I think this truth that God is sovereign in final judgments, it is meant to be a comfort to us. It's to satisfy our inward sense of a need for justice in this world. The fact that there will be a final judgment. Um, assures us that God, that ultimately God's universe is fair. For, for God is in control, he's sovereign, and he does keep accurate records, and he does render judgment, and he does see, and he no, does know. So when Paul, do you remember, tells slaves to be submissive to their masters in Colossians 3, he reassures them for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. But when the, the picture of final judgment mentions the fact in Revelation 20 and Malachi 3 that the books were opened, it reminds us, whether the books are literal or symbolic, that a permanent and accurate record of all our deeds, good and bad, has been kept by God. And ultimately, all accounts will be settled and, crucially, all will be made right. So Christians, followers of Jesus, we're not fatalists. Humans, we're not just puppets on a string. In the Bible, humans decide, we choose, we obey, we disobey, and we will be held accountable for our actions. And that's a really good thing. I mean, we'll all be aware of uh, pain and suffering in this world at the moment. We just think about what's going on in the Ukraine. We think about the hurt in our own families and the sin that is often left unchecked. I was traveling last week. I was in the Far East with work in the slums of Bangkok. And you see the, uh, the terrible way certain strata of society in that country are treated. You know, if you're, um, if you're disabled, for example, well, that must have been your fault in a previous life. So we're going to shun you. Now, that's a terrible way to treat people. Judgment. God is sovereign in final judgment. And that's a good thing. Let's have a think uh, before we go on to our final he- heading. Because God's sovereignty and final judgment, it is a sobering truth. So, so does that fill you with fear? Or does it fill you with comfort? And why? Just have a chat amongst yourselves about that, if you would, for a few minutes. Okay, anyone want to um, share how God's sovereignty and final judgment makes them feel? Does it fill you with fear or comfort, or maybe a bit of both at different times? Hi, Ruben, over here. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I think we we, um, 
sat on the fence and said both. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm very much... Uh, judgment is something to fear uh, when we look at our own heart and maybe we look at um, people around us that we know and love that aren't mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have to remember that the cross is there. So that's the balancing factor to the fear that we might feel at judgment. Because actually we have rescue, mm. which gives us the comfort. Mm. And there is a reason for that judgment. Mm. That's really helpful. Thank you. Well, let's briefly turn to Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, because we skipped over it. But I was struck, um, particularly in verse 11, Revelation 20, verse 11. And maybe this ties together uh, Jesus being the judge and sovereign in, in judgment. So Revelation 20, verse 11, we read, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There's no place for them. And then you, the following verses talk about God's judgment of the books being opened. But the comfort being that there's a throne and that there's a ruler seated on a throne. And we know that ruler to be Jesus. And he'll be carrying out his judgment, as Steve reminds us, with nail marks in his hands. Uh, and earlier on in, in Revelation, obviously, he was the lamb who was slain, who's seated on his throne. And yet that gives us comfort that he is the one who's carrying out judgment. You and I aren't carrying out judgment. He is. And he's done all that is necessary for life. Um, that should give us comfort, particularly um, that it's him who's doing it. Any other comments on this? We'll have, we can pick it up in questions afterwards, if not. Okay, let's go on to our next heading, if we could. Uh, God is sovereign in mission. Uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen. Let's go there. Because this future certainty of judgment does uh, concentrate our minds somewhat on uh, sharing the good news of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 24 Verse 14. Would somebody from our hard-working reading table be happy to read it? Is someone not from our hard-working reading table like to read? Oh, we're sharing the hard work. Well, that's a very experienced table there. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Brilliant. Um, It's a wonderful verse, uh, 24 verse 14. Um, I don't know any more sort of more encouraging and inspiring missionary promises than these words from Jesus. Uh, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So notice, it's not this gospel should be preached, Not this gospel might be preached, but this gospel will be preached. It's not a great commission, nor a great commandment. It's a great certainty, a great confidence building. The gospel will be preached. But who can dare talk like that? How does he know it will? How can he be sure that the church will not fail in its missionary task? Well, only Christ He is the one, the sovereign one, who can promise this universal proclamation of the gospel because he is sovereign. He knows the future success of missions because he is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, who knows the beginning from the end. All the nations will hear. 
Now, just to, just to unpack that a bit, a nation, we must remember, is not a, a modern-day country. When the Old Testament, you remember, spoke of nations, it referred to groups like the Jebusites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Amorites. Now, nations are ethnic groups with their own particular peculiar languages and culture. So we read in Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all peoples. Nations are peoples, people groups, as we call them. Uh, and as the sovereign Son of God and Lord of the Church, Jesus, simply he simply took up the divine promise here in Psalm 117, verse 1, and stated it as an absolute certainty. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Well, that prophetic fulfillment of praise, well, it will be fulfilled. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. The cause of world missions is absolutely assured of success. It cannot fail. Therefore, to quote uh, John Piper again, if we can, Ed. Is he going to come up? Brilliant. Is it not reasonable then that we pray with great faith, that we invest with great confidence, and that we go with a sense of sure triumph? The sovereignty of God over missions enables us to have confidence as we play our part in preaching the gospel and taking it to the nations. Now, we have a problem in the UK and that we are immersed in sort of this sort of Christianized society and culture. And we think, well, if there's not a good Bible preaching, teaching church, which believes in evangelism and discipleship here, there's probably one half an hour away. And that's because there probably is one half an hour away. And in basically, there's ones much closer than that. And yet there are sort of ridiculous numbers, thousands of unreached people groups all across the world who are yet to hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is sovereign in mission. The gospel will be preached. And the challenge is us is will we play our part? John Piper again, is it not reasonable then that we pray with great faith, he's promised it will be preached, that we invest with great confidence, time, money, resources, because the gospel will be preached, and that we go with a sense of sure triumph. The people who go overseas, they're they're not sort of superhero Christians, let me tell you that. They're just ordinary Christians who are basically being obedient who want to play their part as the people God has made them with the gifts that God has given him, them, him and her, them. They go knowing that the gospel will be preached and they want to play their part in that and that's really exciting. So just, just turn our tables now. God is sovereign in missions. Let's just think about this question. In what ways are, are we playing our part in taking the gospel to the nations? Um, it's a slightly provocative question, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can give you my card afterwards. Okay. Anyone want to share what they're doing, playing their part in taking the gospel to the nations? It's quite a provocative question, isn't it? Any sort of small snippets of encouragement? Dorothy, thank you so much, the encourager. (laughs) 
Sorry about that. I think wherever you step outside in Basingstoke, you're taking the gospel to the nations. We are actually missionaries to Popley or Brighton Hill or whatever. Thank you. And the nations are, are here. Thank you so much, Dorothy. The nations are here. And it's, it is remarkable, isn't it, how, um, yeah, the nations have come to our doorstep. And yet there's still this imperative to go. Um, but yes, thank you very much. Great. Let's rattle through some implications, and then we're going to have an application, then we're going to take questions. So let's try and draw this together. God's sovereignty is a huge topic in one sense. But let's see clearly. The wonderful truth of God's sovereignty is, is that one of them is that salvation is possible. So if God were not sovereignly in control and at work, then it wouldn't be possible for any of us to be saved. Um, If we're going to be saved, if we're going to be drawn into a relationship with him, we need God to do it. From first to last, he needs to do it. He's accomplished salvation through the cross, and he applies salvation by his spirit at work in our hearts, opening our eyes blind eyes so we might behold Jesus, repent and believe. And wonderfully, that is what God is at work doing. And the reason he's able to do that is because he's sovereignly in control of my life. He's able to get me, he's able to get you to the point where you hear it. Um, He's able to open blind eyes. Now, for all of us, we've got our own story, don't we? And I've already heard this evening of somebody who became a Christian in their 50s uh, through the witness of a friend in a Bible study in Hook. Isn't that incredible? A Bible study in Hook of all places. That God works and opens blind eyes. Salvation is possible. And we mustn't think... Uh, often we do as British Christians, well, the church is so beleaguered, we're so under attack that God's kingdom is not growing. That is, that is not the case. It's growing hugely all over the world, and it's growing here in this country. One by one, people are becoming Christians. That's wonderful. So salvation is possible. So keep sharing the good news of Jesus, because God is sovereignly at work, even in Popley. Second, it means salvation is secure. Because God is sovereign, and maybe this is a particular comfort for us this evening, he is able to hold on to us all the way to heaven. If it were down to me, if it was down to you, you wouldn't make it. Let me tell you. But it's not down to me, and it's not down to you. It's down to him, and he is strong enough. Uh, A friend of mine uh, who's now a pastor in America, he was on holiday uh, and he was walking along uh, a coastal cliff top in Cornwall, and he fell. And large waves, big cliffs, uh, and he needed a coast guard to come and rescue him. And he tells the story of the grip of the coast guard. And you know how you might uh, reach up to grip onto a coast guard, and you sort of might hold a grip like this. But my friend was telling me that's not how the coast guard grips onto you, because at any moment you could let go. He won't let go because that's his job, but you might let go. And so the Coast Guard grabs hold of you there. And he grabs hold of you there, and you grab hold of them. But even if you let go, the Coast Guard won't let go. Now, isn't that a wonderful picture of God's sovereignty keeping hold of us? Yes, I should hold on to him. And the New Testament is really clear. Make every effort we're told and encouraged to do. But he's got hold of me. And that is a wonderful comfort. He, he sovereignly reaches down and grabs hold of me, as weak and as stupid and as sinful as I am, 
So my salvation is 100% secure. He is in control of my life. Make every effort, but he's got hold of me. That is wonderfully reassuring. So if you're somebody here this evening who is thinking, well, who knows how hard the Christian life is, keep holding on, but rest assured he's got hold of you too. Third, the sovereignty of God means that prayer is meaningful. Why pray? Already this evening, I know people have said, well, if God is sovereign, why do I pray? Why do I need to do evangelism? Well, this is it, because we believe God is able to do something in response to what we ask. So let's turn to James chapter 4 and verse 2. Uh, James chapter 4 and verse 2. It's really the last sentence, but I'll read all of the verse. James chapter 4, verse 2. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Prayer is meaningful because God is sovereignly in control of the universe and he is able to act. Huh, but Rupert, if God is in charge, why, why should I pray? Well, the same God who decreed the ends has also decreed the means. And the means is his people's prayers. If you want extra homework, have a look at Exodus 32, verses 7 to 14 this evening when you get home. Because it looks like in Exodus 32, 7 to 14, that Moses manages to change God's mind in the whole course of history. But in verse 13 of Exodus 32, it shows that God has already decided and promised to take the Israelites to be his people. And rather, God is using Moses' prayer to bring about his plans. And that is the nature of God. He loves to involve us in his work. That's part of his majesty. He, he longs for us to, to, to use us in his plans. So that's why we pray. God really cares what happens in this world, even as his plans are coming to pass. He cares about you. He cares about that situation you're going through. We don't pray to change God's plan. We're simply involving ourselves in God's plan and fostering that spirit of dependence and trust and childlike sort of necessity and relationship with him as we pray. Prayer is meaningful as we pray to a sovereign God who kindly involves us in his plans. Fourthly, uh, evangelism we see is worth it, or evangelism is effective. Now, already this evening, I know people have said, well, if God is sovereign, then I don't need to do evangelism. Uh, God will do it. He doesn't need any help from me. If, if God is in charge, why, why bother preaching the gospel and having those awkward conversations with our friends and neighbors? Why don't we just sit back? Why don't we just relax? Why don't we just let the Father draw people to himself? Would you remember the story of William Carey? He was planning to go to India as a missionary, and he went to see the leaders of various denominations, and he was told these words, young man, when God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. 
I mean, is that the right response? No, that's not the right response. What does Jesus say? Go to the nations. Um, We're told to go. We're told to share the gospel. We're told he's chosen us what to do. He's appointed us to bear fruit, fruit that will last, fruit of good works, fruit of character. And he says that whoever then comes to him, he'll never drive away. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Over time, friends, our evangelism will bear fruit because God is sovereign. If it was just down to me to persuade, to twist arms, there's no way my evangelism would be effective. But because God is sovereign, he is at work. And many who are appointed to eternal life believe. Let's turn to Acts 13. We've almost finished. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. So Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the gospel. They've been engaging in evangelism. And we read Acts 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, Gentiles could read as nations. When the nations, the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Friends, we don't know who's been appointed to eternal life. People, neighbors of yours could be appointed to eternal life. And yet that doesn't stop us from sharing the gospel. It encourages us to share the gospel behind that door, at that desk, on that touchline where our children are playing sport. That person could be appointed, have been appointed to eternal life. And it's through me sharing the gospel with them that they'll come into God's glorious kingdom and understand and appreciate the riches of his grace. God has a people And the way he's drawing his people to himself is through the proclamation of the gospel, the prayerful proclamation of the gospel. So we mustn't pass up God-given opportunities to be used by God to save other people. He says the same to us today, what he said to Esther. Remember what Mordecai said to her? For such a time as this, you might have been brought to the throne. Well, for such a time as this, you're in that bowls club You're in that tennis club. You are at that school gate. For such a time as this, who else will share the gospel? That person might have been appointed to eternal life. So four implications of God's sovereignty. There's many more. But finally, let's just consider as we finish this final application of peace. The the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is meant to leave us not anxious, not worried, Uh, mentally taxed maybe, but it's meant to lead to a a deep, deep peace. So let's turn to Matthew 6, and we'll finish with this. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 34. Uh, Familiar words, Matthew 6, verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, This verse comes at the end of a chapter, particularly the second half of the chapter, which is all about the sovereignty of God. Uh, And Jesus is saying, look, don't worry about these things. God knows, because God is sovereign. He knows what you need. 
and he knows where you'll be for all eternity, and he knows what tomorrow will bring. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You can trust in him. Uh, Esther Edwards was the uh, daughter of Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher of the late 1700s, and hers was not an easy life at all. And when you read through her journals, the, the dominant themes are loneliness and hardship uh, of everyday existence, which were only made endurable by the knowledge of God's guidance of uh, human affairs. Now, when her second child was born, uh, Esther was entirely alone, but her faith in God helped her to meet this ordeal. She writes these words, I felt very gloomy when I found I was actually in labor to think that I was, as it were, destitute of earthly friends. No mother, no husband, and none of my particular friends that belonged to the town. Only my dear God was all of these relations to me. She was stripped of everything. She had lost children already in childbirth, and yet she knew the one who sovereignly overruled her life, who was close by. On another occasion, she was visiting her father in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where the community was expecting an attack from Red Indians. And she had a momentary crisis of faith. And she said these words, I want to be made willing to die in any way God pleases, but, but I'm not willing to be butchered by a barbarous enemy, nor can't make myself willing to be so. What did she do? Ultimately, she trusted in providence and she prayed for survival. And you know what? The attack, it never came. We will all know suffering, scared people, members of our family, maybe members of this church. How do we comfort them in the midst of their very real trials? Well, obviously, we hold out the sovereign love of God. We hold out the Lord Jesus who says, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome. My peace I give to you. And we encourage one another to trust in God's providence and we pray for survival. It seems to be a very good way about exper- to go about experiencing God's peace. Corrie ten Boom, I know is a uh, hero- heroine for many of us. She was a Holocaust survivor She wrote these words, Often I've heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic. And look at this lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends weather, Job 37. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in the German concentration camp. I remember on one occasion when I was very discouraged there, everything around us was dark and there was in my heart a darkness. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corrie, said Betsy, he has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. There is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone And when we say we trust in the sovereign God, we take the comfort that his love is available to us all in our good times and in our really hard times. So whatever we're facing, whatever circumstances around the corner, 
we can trust him because his steadfast love never fails. We could take some questions in a moment, but I just want us to be quiet, and then I'm going to read out some words from uh, William Cooper, the uh, 18th century hymn writer, and I'll lead us in a prayer. These words are God, the title is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings upon your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let me lead us in a short prayer. Our sovereign Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you rule this world and you wonderfully work out your purposes and plans for us. We praise you so much that uh, you stepped into this world. You became one of us. Your son, the Lord Jesus, took on uh, human flesh. And so you know what it is to live uh, with uncertainty. You know what it is to live in suffering. And yet, your son, the Lord Jesus, was without sin And yet he was prepared to suffer and die for us at the cross. We thank you, Lord, so much that that was your sovereign plan. We thank you for the extent that you went to display the the magnificence of your grace towards us. We pray that this truth of your sovereignty would indeed encourage us and keep us as we seek to serve you and live for you. We praise you that you are sovereign. We praise you that you're working out your providential purposes. We pray that we trust you this evening and tomorrow and in the days and weeks to come, that we entrust you our lives, our families, our work, our ministries, all that we have and all that we are. And we pray that as we entrust ourselves to you, you would be at work in us for our good, but ultimately for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Rupert, um, for guiding us through an introduction to these these deep things. Um, And thank you all for your questions as well. Um, Rob is also going to join us for our questions. Rupert, don't go away. Don't flee just yet. before we get going, though, is I thought it'd be worth just uh, telling a, a really brief story about uh, two guys that were around the same sort of time as the Edwards that Rupert mentioned, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, two sort of like big Christian heroes of that sort of time. And they actually came down on different sides of how to read the Bible when it comes to God's sovereignty. And uh, one of George Whitfield's uh, sort of students, he said, oh, you know, in heaven... Are we even going to see John Wesley there? And George Whitfield's response was, no, we won't, because he'll be so near the throne of God 
and we'll be so far back that we won't even be able to see him. And I think that, that's just a helpful and good reminder, isn't it? That's the sort of place, that's the sort of church we want to be, that sort of graciousness, lovingness, appreciation for our brothers and sisters as we go into asking these questions about these big and important things. Of course we want to be serious about truth, but we want to have that tone too. So to that end, <laughs> Rupert, Rob, um, there's quite a few uh, sort of questions along these lines, but I, I'm going to go with the top voted one. Um, if everything is God's will, did Judas have any choice in betraying Jesus, or was it God's will for Judas to spend eternity in hell? Hmm. So we're starting light. <laughs> well, I, I think in one sense uh, he had no choice, and in another sense he had every choice, because we see God's sovereignty and we see human responsibility. And I said something earlier, so we're trying to, we try and squash those two together, and we try and sort of work out what that squashed mess looks like. And actually, we have to hold them in tension. So we say, look, God is sovereign, but humans are responsible. And I think we come unstuck when we tr- with a question like that, where we try and unpick it and squash it together. But God was absolutely sovereign over the death of his son, the Lord Jesus, as the Acts 2, Acts 4 says. And yet Judas was absolutely responsible for his betrayal, uh, and he shouldn't have done that. Mm. Rob, anything to add? Um, I don't think I want to say anything different to that. Um, Maybe it'll help if I added some fancy words. Um, So, uh, because the question asks about God's will, and um, sorry if this confuses stuff, if it's not helpful, just forget it, but there are two types of Talking, uh, two ways of talking about God's will, his decretive will and his uh, perceptive will. So uh, this is what theologians say, um, and I think this is what Rupert's saying. His decretive will is his um, ability to bring about what he intends, and that's what Rupert was saying. There's nothing that can thwart him uh, when he de- um, decrees it, it happens. That's his decretive will. But there is a perceptive will in the sense that God uh, explains things he loves and things he doesn't love. Uh, he gives his law. So Judas, in that sense, was not obeying God's will. He was not obeying his uh, preceptive will. He was disobeying God. He should have uh, honoured the Lord Jesus. He should have kissed the son in a way that uh, uh, showed his love rather than his betrayal. But his dec- God's decretive will uh, was um, did was effectual. So both of those things are true. Both of those things uh, are held in tension alongside one another, but perhaps another angle on what Rupert is saying. Mm. Mm. Thank you both. I, I, th- I think this next question sort of unfolds quite neatly out of these, uh, what we're talking about. Um, so uh, if God never lets go even when we do, like with the illustration you mm. gave, what about uh, John 15, verse 6, where Jesus is talking about him being the vine and the disciples the branches, believers' branches, mm. uh, but he instructs them to remain in him or there's a danger of being cast out, cut off. Mm. That sort of language is used. H- how do we respond to that? Well, I, I mean, I think John 15 is a really good chapter to consider. Mm. So we've been grafted into the vine. Uh, I am vine, you are the branches. That's the wonder of God's grace. He saves us. And then he says, look, I've appointed you to go and bear fruit at the end of the cha- uh, halfway through the chapter, fruit that lasts. And so we, we have this relationship, uh, relationship set up, this tension set up, 
saying, this is who you are, be who you are, and as you are who you are, uh, that strengthens the relationship. Um, So obedience in the Christian life is really fundamental to our assurance as Christians. As I'm living in accordance with God's word, as I'm putting into practice his revealed will for me, uh, that that, by his spirit he works in us to assure me that I am a child of God. So yeah, read John 15, it's it's all there. And just to chip in, um, a friend of mine was asked a similar sort of question about, you know, if the Bible teaches me that I can't fall away, you know, is it possible to fall away? Uh, And he said, no, the Bible answers, when the Bible's asked that question, can I fall away? The answer is, don't fall away. (laughs) And I found that very helpful because actually the, the, the Bible is the very means God uses for us to not fall away. And some of those warnings, like John 15, verse 6, you know, Hebrews uh, 4, classic, um, are there to prompt us to keep going. And I know I've sat in church, not in a great place, and I've just heard something spoken from God's word, and it's just brought me back into line. Mm. And and I rejoice in that because I think that's uh, God's sovereignty keeping me. Mm, Thank you. I think we've got time for one more. There are some really big questions there, unfortunately. We just don't have time to tackle properly. But um, if this idea of sovereignty, how, does, how do we stop it from making us sort of feel flat or stoic or like we're just robots? How, how does this actually bring our faith to life, do you think? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's not the, it's a doctrine of God's character that we, we mustn't set up in sort of opposition to other ones. Um, I, I think it... I think it is meant to open our eyes to who God is and who we are as his children and to give us that concrete for our souls that he is the Job 42 verse 2. No plan of his can be thwarted. Um, uh, now, if, that, if God is sovereign over my life, that's not going to lead me to a place of laziness or um, sort of disenchantment or, or sort of retreat. It's going to... If God is sovereign over my life... That's really exciting, and he's, he's wanting me to live out my life in accordance with his will to his glory. So I think the sovereignty of God isn't meant to make sort of blamanges of us, but it's meant to give us real encouragement to, to follow him faithfully. Mm. Yeah, and I, just to chip in on that, I, I found it so helpful what Rupert was telling us about prayer. This is the thing that drives me to prayer. I mean, stoicism is essentially well, what happens, happens, and I just have to sort of roll with it. Actually, God does answer prayer, and he does promise uh, to give us our daily bread. And, wow, to get up every morning and think, actually, yes, God's sovereign. He's got the ability. I can pray to him, uh, having full confidence uh, he's going to do things for my good. What's more exciting than that? Amen. Yeah. Oh,